If you've got a Bible, open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. So we've been in the book of Philippians uh, the last couple of weeks, and today we're taking a break from Philippians uh, to talk about the riveting, super compelling, wildly exciting topic of church membership. Yeah, and a whistle. I love that. Uh, So good. Hey, so here's why we're talking about church membership today and taking a break from our Philippians series. Uh, Next week, for those that are members in our church, next week starts uh, the little annual process that we do called membership renewal. So for those that are members in our church, we take membership membership really serious at Frontline, which means it's not just sort of like a Costco membership or uh, some other kind of country club membership or some sort of timeshare spiel where you kind of sign on dotted line and you get benefits from it. Membership at our church is all about committing and rooting down your life with us, under our leaders, with one another, for the flourishing of discipleship over the course of the time that God has you here at our church. So annually, we go through this membership renewal process so that those who are members in our church can rehearse what's happened over the last year, how has God used the ministry of our church, what has God done in your life, where do you see God taking you in the coming year, how can we as pastors help grow you over the coming year? It's a, it's a way where we have a touch point annually to kind of consider our committedness together, our partnership together, and how we are uh, moving forward in the gospel together. So that's what's coming up in the coming week. So I thought this would be a a special moment to talk about what church membership means. Several of you have been around Frontline for a number of years, and you haven't stepped forward in membership. And so this is kind of an invitation to hear what we believe about that. Others of you, you're here this morning, and you're like, this is my first time, church membership, not really ready for that totally okay. Uh, I'm not asking you to be ready for that today, but I want you to hear what it looks like for us to be members and partners together in the gospel. That's why I wanted to talk about partnership and membership today. So 1 Peter chapter 2, I want to begin by reading this passage, and then I'll pray, and we'll jump in from there. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me, and, uh, and we'll see how God uses his word. The voice of Jesus speaks to us like this, 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word to us. Let's pray together. God, would you use your word today? Would you help us understand it? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, my, my oldest daughter is seven years old now, and the older she gets, the more she is beginning to look like and act like my wife. Uh, so she is super optimistic. My wife has this sort of Pollyanna, op- Pollyanna uh, optimism about her, uh, so my daughter does too. She's got uh, all kinds of nurturing instincts. She's a little mama around the house with our four kids. Uh, she's also a type A classic firstborn, so she is in charge, and she knows what's going on, and she will remind you when you give her instructions that she already knows those instructions. Instructions, and she's got it all down, right? So she is more and more like my wife all the time. And so consequently, we are parenting her and we are trying to shepherd her and correct her accordingly, right? Because for all the good things, we want to pour gas on that fire and let them grow all the more. But for all the bad things, we want to kind of go, oh, I've seen that before. Let's, let's, let's parent that accordingly, right? And all of us have experiences like this where sometimes you, you meet someone who reminds you of someone else, Right? You, you meet someone who reminds you of something else, someone else because of the way they look or because of the way they act or their certain mannerisms. And, and all of us kind of do this, at least 
I think that all of us do this. I know I do this. There's a way in which you meet someone who reminds you of someone else, like in the case of my daughter with my wife, and automatically in your mind, you start almost posturing yourself toward that person like the other person that you know, because they just remind you of that person so much, right? And so another example of this is that there are some of you who are, who are having kids or you're, you're considering having kids, and you're talking about names that you would like to have for your kids. And so you start throwing out names, and automatically you think, there are certain names I will never name a future child of mine because of someone else in the past I knew by that name and I don't want to ever hear that name in my house ever again, right? So you're thinking like, oh, Heath, I hate that guy. I will never name my child Heath. Why would I ever do that to him? And some of you are going, my name is Heath. I'm, I'm sure you're fine, but I knew a Heath and he wasn't fine, right? But all of us have this way of meeting someone and knowing someone and seeing someone else's image or reflection in that person and automatically it takes us back to those other moments. I mentioned all that this morning because that's exactly what's happening to all of us when it comes to the war that we wage against the enemy of our faith. And here's what I mean by that. So the scriptures tell us that Satan rages against Christians. He rages against those who follow Jesus. And why? Because when Satan sees us, he sees in us the image of the one who struck him the death blow. When Satan sees us, he sees in us a remembrance and a recognition of the one who totally upended him and defeated him. Satan sees in followers of Jesus a reminder of Jesus, right? And so for every man, for every woman, for every child who bends the knee to Jesus, Satan is reminded his days are short, his days have been numbered. He has been upended, and soon and very soon, he will finally be destroyed. And so with whatever punch-drunk strength he has left that Jesus has, has allowed him to still have in these days, defeated but not yet destroyed, with whatever punch-drunk strength he has left, he wants to spend those days raging against us. And so here's what this means. This means the church, being connected and committed to a local church, is unbelievably important. Because here's what's happening in a local church. God is knitting us together. God is bringing us together. He's calling us a family. He's giving us protection, what the scriptures call Ephesians 5, the household of faith. He's giving us protection here. So when it comes to the life that we all sort of carry out every day following Jesus, fighting temptation, battling against the accusations the evil one would hurl at us, God never intended that you and I would do that alone. God never intended that we would just attend church services and then go out there and deal with an enemy that rages against us by ourselves. All of our strength, all of our endurance, all of our growth comes from the collective witness of the church reminding us over and over and over again, God's with you. He never leaves you. You're his. You belong to him. You're adopted. You're secure. You're filled with his spirit. This is what the church does, right? And so here's the church. The church is God's grace to us to over and over again throughout our entire Christian life remind us of who we are, what we are, who we belong to, and then lastly, what God is making us to be. The church is God's grace to remind us who we are, who we belong to, and what God is making us to be. And that's exactly what's going on in 1 Peter chapter 2. Look back at it because he tells us the kind of people God has made us to be. It says, you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
Okay, so here's what's happening in this passage. Peter is writing to a group of persecuted Christians, people who are being driven from their homes, their jobs, their communities, and their families, because in the first century, the Roman Caesar was not having anyone who would call someone else Lord than him. And so he was persecuting these Christians. Peter writes to this group of Christians as they're looking for something to anchor themselves down into as they were being killed and driven out because of naming Jesus as Lord. And he says to them, in the midst of their instability, he says, I want to remind you of who you are. I want to remind you of what you are. And so he begins to speak to them. He says, you are God's people. You are God's people. I know your circumstances are crazy right now. I know you don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. But remember, remember, in the midst of all of this, you are God's people. You belong to God. You are chosen by God. You're a people for his own possessions. You have been given the mercy of God. Why? To proclaim the excellencies of God. You belong to God. He tells them this. This is the first thing he tells in the midst of their massive persecution. Now, the reason that's important for us today is because even though we're not in that, this message still applies to us. But also notice it's not just that he tells them that they belong to God. Notice the language he uses as he tells them this. It's consistently in the plural. So look at what he says. But you, the plural you, you are chosen by God. And he goes on to say, and you, you are a people for his own possession. The plural you are a people for his own possession. You are a holy nation, which means you are God's people. And you collectively have received his mercy. And so Peter is speaking in the collective. He's talking as the whole. And what he means by this is this. That although all of you individually have received God and have received his mercy, you are not individuals to God. You have been saved to a people, and so you're a part of a larger whole. You are members now of one another. And so this is huge for us to think about, especially in our hyper-individualized culture, where all of us tend to think about our own personal relationship with Jesus, right? You hear that language all the time, focus on your own personal walk with God. How's your relationship with Jesus, your personal relationship with Christ? But what this text is trying to show us is that we, we are not, uh, our life with God is not distinct and cut off from other people's life with God. Like my walk with God is not distinct and cut off from your walk with God. We are caught up in this together. Everything that I know personally with God is now being intermingled with what you know personally with God because he's made us a family together. I can't know my life with God without my shared experience with you. And you can't know your life with God without your shared experience with the church. It's now in the church that we get a collective witness of all of what God is doing in his character. And so this is huge for us, right? Because now you think about this makes sense of what the church actually is. This is not just a simply a place you attend on Sundays. The church is not simply uh, uh, an activity that you do throughout the week or on Sunday afternoons. That, that's not what the church is. The church inherently, but what is saying in this passage, the church is a people that you belong to. That's what the church is. Fundamentally, the church is a people that you belong to. It's caught up in our shared experience together. So here's what's happening in this room. You and I, we're a group of people who are ex-rebels of God's kingdom. That's what's happened in here. We are ex-rebels of God's kingdom. We are a ragtag group of people busted up by sin, broken up by sin. Even if we don't think we are, we have the sin of pride and self-righteousness all over us. We are busted up and cracked up by sin, all of us. 
But God, being rich in mercy, made us a people who once had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. Once we were not a people, now we are a people. Once we did not have a chosenness of a father, now we have the adoption as sons with a chosenness of a father who has now saved us to demonstrate and declare his excellencies to the world. That's who we are. He has made us a people, not just persons. He's made us a people together. You can't understand your life with Christ without the people of Christ. You can't do it. It's all together. And so now what's happening in this passage is we want to be a people of a certain kind. Look at what he says here. He says in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so this gets us to the question of what I want us to get down to today is why is covenant membership so important? Why do we care so much about church membership? And so let me give you the bottom. I'm going to do something really risky. I want to give you the bottom line of the sermon before I tease it out for the next 15 minutes. Okay? So here's why we care about church membership so much. Bottom line, we believe that God has saved us with a covenant love. We believe he has saved us with a covenant love. And here's what that means. He has saved us with an unflinching, sacrificial, committed, promise-keeping kind of love. That's covenant. A promise-keeping kind of love. And so because God saves us with that kind of love, what does that make us? It makes us a people of the same kind. We were bought with covenant love. Now that makes us a covenant people. That's why church membership is so important. That's why covenant community is so important. Because it's covenant love that made all of this possible. Once you were not a people who had mercy, but now you've received mercy. Now you've received mercy, covenant mercy. And so here's, here's what I want to say about this. The mercy of God is an altogether unique kind of mercy. It's not a mercy that simply helps you feel better about yourself. Although it does do that. It forgives you of your sins, gives you a sense of self. But God's mercy is a unique kind of mercy. It's a unique kind of covenant mercy that makes you an altogether different kind of person and weaves you to a different kind of people. So let me step back for a second. I want to give you the logic of God's covenant mercy. Do you want to know how God feels about you? Yeah, all of us do in this room. Do you want to know how much God loves you? Yeah, all of us do in this room. Do you want to know just how much God has never left you or he will never leave you, even in the darkest seasons of life? Yeah, all of us want to know those sorts of things. And so the reason and the way you can answer those questions in life is you don't look to your own emotions, right? You don't look to your circumstances to find the answer to those questions. You don't look to your own thoughts and your best ideas to discern those answers to those questions. You don't even look to your own energies to discover that kind of mercy. You don't look to any of those things. Over and over again in the Bible, when it comes to God's covenant love and us understanding it, over and over again, he tells us to look to Jesus. And so turn over in 1 John chapter 4, and I want to show you what's going on with covenant love and then what that means for us. He says over and over again, look to Jesus and see what God has given. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. It says, in this is love, the love of God. It was made manifest among us. It was shown off among us. 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. It's not that we loved God, but it's that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So do you hear what's being said here? If you want to know how much God loves you, God is saying, then see what I've given. Look at my son, look at what he suffered and see how far my love will go. Just see how far it will go. God's love is way better than any emotion. It's way better than any feeling, although it does arouse us emotionally and in our feelings. It's way better than any of that, and it's not reduced to those things. God's love in this text is strong. God's love is gritty. God's love is sacrificial, and it's resolved to do good for you. That's what's going on with God's love. It's resolved to do good such that not even our sin would get in the way of sending his own son, even when it would cost him everything. It's resolved to do good for you. Strong, gritty, sacrificial, committed, resolved to do good kind of love. That's the love of God. He doesn't need us. He's not obligated to us. His love is completely one-sided. It's not that we loved him. He loved us. He's not obligated to us. He freely chose. He freely willed. And he's freely given. This is covenant love. This is promised love. This is the kind of mercy we've received. So when you sober underneath that kind of mercy, one-sided mercy, non-obligated mercy, uh, un, uh, it's, it's, it's unneeded mercy, it's totally self-sufficient mercy. When you get sobered under that, a resolve to do good kind of mercy, it does something to you. It does something to you. You can't receive mercy like that and then stay the same. We all know this. This is the life change of the Christian life. This is the life change and the transforming power of God's love. And so what does it do? It creates a people of the same kind. It actually makes us a loving people. And that's exactly what the next verses say in 1 John 4. Look at 11 and 12. It says, Beloved, if God has so loved us, this is the sober reality in response to his love. Beloved, if God so loved us, then what? We also ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God's love abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And so you see what he says there, right? Like he says, if God has so loved you, then there's now an oughtness. There's now a moral duty that we have to love one another. But it's not that we have a moral oughtness. It's that we actually want to do this. Covenant love creates covenant people who share covenant love. And look at who he says to love. He says to love who? One another. One another. And here's what's interesting about this. When John says this, Again, he was writing not to just the capital C church, Christians everywhere, although we all receive it. When this letter was first written, it was written to a specific group of Christians. A specific group read this. They looked around at one another and they knew who the one another were. It was really clear. And so when John writes this and he says, love one another, he's not talking about an ambiguous blob of Christians out there, just kind of love one another. No, he's talking about people in specific like he's talking about people you can actually live out covenant love with, people that you can see, like the people sitting next to you in the pews, 
people that you can actually look at in the face, people that you can actually rejoice with, people that you can actually mourn with, people that you can actually forgive, people that you can actually be forgiven by, people that you can actually pray for. He's talking about specific one another. So let me say it this way, and here's where the rubber hits the road. You can't live out this passage. I can't live out this passage. This passage cannot be obeyed outside of the context of a local church. It, it, it's, it's literally impossible. If we're going to call ourselves Christians and call ourselves those who are a people for his own possession, made to love one another, you literally can't do this outside of a local church. Who else are you going to love? Specifically, who are you called to show this off amongst? How do we know we're actually doing this unless it's a group of people we're going, I'm held accountable with you and you with me to live this out and obey this. Like you can't do this without the context of a local church. So here's what he's talking about. And here's what I think is so fascinating and difficult about the Christian life. He's talking about a kind of covenantal love. He's talking about a kind of commitment like God has had toward us. This is a covenantal love that we've received that now covenants us with one another. He's actually saying, I want you to commit to other Christians in the same way that God's committed to you. Like I read that and I go, man, that, that's heavy. But that's also really beautiful if we were to get inside of this and obey this. And so I know there's people who will hear this and there's already, I can feel reactions occasionally in the room when I say things like this. Well, hey, listen, I, I don't get me wrong. I love Jesus, but why do I need leadership in the church? And why do I need the church? And why do I need these kind of formal organizations kind of governing over all this? I, I love Jesus. I just don't need the church. I'll attend the church. I'll do that sort of thing on Sundays. But where I really live this out is with another group of Christians somewhere else and other ministries or in my office complex. I don't need to really commit to the church. Who are you to kind of oversee and judge what I'm doing with my own faith? I have my personal walk with God and I don't really need the church. We hear these things sort of all the time. Maybe you've heard them said, or maybe you think them yourself. And here's kind of just simply how I want to respond to that. It's not, don't hear me saying that in other ways that other ministries or other groups of Christians that you walk with outside of a local church are wrong or that we're better than that. I'm 100% for other ministries, other organizations, and Christian fellowship outside of our church. Totally for it. But here's what I am saying. Just by a simple reading of this passage and a simple reading of tons of other New Testament passages that I could take you to and bore you for hours this morning, right? Just by a simple reading of those passages, the New Testament doesn't have a category for a Christian living out their faith outside of the context of a local church. Like it doesn't even have a category for that. So even though we have this whole reality now where people say, I, I love Jesus, but not the church, or I'm, I'm following Jesus, but I don't really bother with the church, whatever reality we have of that now, that's just not a reality the New Testament's even familiar with. That's just not a kind of Christianity the New Testament even recognizes. Whatever that is, it's not New Testament Christianity. You, you can't do this outside of the local church. And so then look at when he says again in verse 12, he says, no one has ever seen God. This is an amazing passage. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, it says God abides in us. And look at this last part, that his love is actually perfected with us. His love is perfected with us. 
And so God's love, his covenantal love, produces not just loving persons, but a loving people, right? And so there is, a, and all of us know this, there's a unique bond between those who know the love of God together. Like you can meet someone and not really know them, but if you find out you're a Christian, then all of a sudden there's a commonality, there's a relationship, there's a love that you guys share in common that's gonna supersede and oversee whatever else you talk about. There's a way in which those who share the love of God have a unique bond together. And so when we are loving each other and laying down our lives and committing to one another, this passage actually says that God's love is perfected among us. It's perfected among us which means we fully experience all that God intends with his love. Now, now the opposite is also true. If we don't commit to one another, if we don't have covenant love in a committed kind of gritty way with one another in a body of believers in a local church, then God's love is not perfected among us. It's also the opposite's true. This doesn't mean that God's love ceases to be perfect. It just means that our experience of it isn't, isn't full. It doesn't mean that God's love ceases to be perfect, but that our experience of it falls short. And this also isn't to say that you can't experience God's love without the church, but it is to say that you can't know it fully. You you can't know it fully without the church. It's not perfected in you without other believers committing to you and you to them. That's the only place where the love of God can be perfected in the context of his people learning to live like family. It's his love toward us and then his love outward from us to those around us. And so the church, to say it this way, I know we're all here on a Sunday, so it feels kind of odd that I'd be preaching this to people who are here on a Sunday, but the church is not additional. It's not optional. It's not secondary to the Christian life. The church is central. It's not the thing. Jesus is the thing, but he formally identified with us. He officially identified with us. He committedly identified with us. And so church membership, covenant love means I am formally, officially, uh, and I am in a committed kind of way identifying with Jesus and his people because he did that with me. It wasn't generic identification Jesus had with us. It was formal. He died for your specific sins and he made you He made you his specific adopted son or daughter. And so in that way, you have a specific father who now gives you a specific family and you're going, I'm gonna specifically identify with them because I'm all in with what he specifically died for. A local church, a local body. And so this circles all the way back around to where we started in 1 Peter chapter two, reminding us that God has made us a people, a people for his own possession that we have together received mercy. We have together been chosen. We have together been made holy. And God saves us for himself and to a people. And so just a few kind of closing remarks for those who kind of are in the room. So if you're here today and you're like, this is my first Sunday here and you're talking about committing to all of this, listen, don't panic. (laughs) This is not a sales pitch. There's no golf clubs on the back end of this where this is a timeshare spiel, right? It's not that. Not looking for your money. I'm just talking about what it means to be devoted to Jesus and why his church is so central to that. And so if you are a guest today, we're so glad that you're here and there is plenty of time to spend time in this church, get to know us and, uh, and find out if this is a place for you. 
There's plenty of time to do that. We want you to explore all that you want, ask all the questions you want. It's an open door policy here if you're a guest. Explore this whole thing. But hear me when I say this. Don't just attend church for decades just to attend. Like, don't do that. So my hope is that this would be a a place that God would root you down and bring you to. But if over time you kind of go, frontline's not a place for me, like, I'm not offended by that. Our elders aren't offended by that. Wherever it is, just go all in somewhere. If it's not here, find a place you can actually go all in, you can commit to, you can root down under leaders with other believers and carry this out. Just don't attend or date church for decades. Like, make a commitment. It's actually beautiful, right? For others of you, though, and you're those who have been around Frontline for like a number of years, and like you would call Frontline home, and you would call Frontline your church, but you've never gone through membership, and you've sort of put it on the back burner, and you're like, I'm in a community group, and I serve, and I do all these things, but I'm not a member there. And to you, I would just say, on some level, I can understand that. Maybe our membership classes haven't come at convenient times. But in other ways, I would say, like, you've made membership so optional that it just doesn't even show up as something important or something to obey. And listen, this is not about us having a deeper database or more list of names. As I said on the front end, membership's a big deal for us. We want to renew it annually. It's not just something you sign on dotted line and you're sort of on the, on the register and database until you die. And then even after that, you're still on there just to make our church look big and all kinds of people. Membership matters because it's the mechanism that we have to know who are we supposed to care for? Who are we supposed to oversee? Like, who am I as a pastor accountable for? The scriptures tell me that, like, I'm going to stand before Jesus and give an account for how I shepherded the flock. So membership is actually a way in which we go, who's the flock? Like, like who are the ones that have raised their hand, that have rooted down, to committed to lock arms and carry this out? Who am I supposed to help carry along? Who are our other elders supposed to help carry along? Who are you supposed to help carry along? All are welcome, but there's a unique way in which we're knitted together as family through membership. And so if you've been around for a while, in a couple of weeks, July 14th, we have another membership class. You'll find out more about that next week. It's a Saturday from nine to whatever in the afternoon. Come and be a part of that with us. It's a big deal, and we want you to be a part of the church. And then there's other groups in the room, and you're the last group I want to speak to, and you're, you're those who are frontline members. Like, you are bought in, you've rooted down, you've gone through the whole thing, and you're part of this, and you're about to get the email next week to say, membership renewal. And if that's you, like, understand who you are, right? The scriptures are telling you this morning, you are bought with a price. You're a people for God's possession. You've been given his mercy. Once you weren't a people, now you are a people. You've been given covenant love from God. It's now made you a covenant people here at our church. When you get that email, it's not just an update to make sure your address is just right in our database. It's actually a way where you get to think about, what has this church meant to me over the last year? Where do I need the elders to tap in and give me counsel and prayer? Where do I need my community group to tap in and give me counsel and prayer? Hey, where do I want to see growth happen in the next year? And how can I get resourced by my church to do that? Annual membership renewal is actually a thing where you get to go, hey, here's where my discipleship is growing under the context of this church, where I'm locking arms with this people, and I'm actually carrying out the love one another, like John said, right? And so you think about who we are in this city. Here's what I want for Frontline Church. A group of people who recognize the church is not optional, 
but it's central to what Christ is bringing to us. It's the household of faith where we're protected against the evil one, we're protected against our flesh, where though he rages, he will not win because the collective witness of the people remind me who I am, mercy of God, chosen by God, royal priesthood of God, a holy nation belonging to him. His son died for me with a one-sided kind of love. I'm secure, I'm okay, I'm gonna make it, and the devil will not win, my sin will not have the last word, because the church stands with me. The church stands with me. And so I want to end with just the passage we read in the beginning. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies, the splendor, the might, the complexity, the ferocity, the strength, the beauty, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received covenant mercy.